Hey, good morning, everybody. Can y'all hear me? I guess I'll go ahead and get started. It's kind of awkward without the music in the background. Um, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year early uh, to everyone. Uh, If you're new here at West Hills this morning, uh, welcome. I want to especially welcome you this morning, and we're so glad that you've decided to join us. Um, You you are uh, joining us at kind of an exciting time in the life of our church as... um, you heard a little bit about from Taylor already. Uh, this Sunday uh, is distinctive here at West Hills, not only because it's, of course, the last Sunday of 2018 together, um, but it's also the last Sunday that we're together uh, as a congregation before we uh, gather next week to um, vote on the future leadership of the church. And uh, so in some ways this morning, uh, we have an opportunity not only to look back and reflect on 2018 and look ahead to 2019 together, uh, but to actually look much farther back and much farther ahead um, together. And so as I assured those of you who were here uh, back in November when I preached that first Sunday after uh, Pastor Gary announced his retirement, um, I want to just reiterate that in the most significant ways, um, regardless of, of the way that the vote goes next week, uh, West Hills will not change at all come March when he retires. Um, our commitment as a church to biblical orthodoxy, uh, our commitment to the authority of God's word, to studying it deeply and preaching it expositorily, our commitment to growing in the word and sanctification alongside one another, to community and life-giving relationships, to missions and service, and most of all, our commitment to Jesus and to his gospel. None of these things will change in March, but I would be uh, misguided this morning if I tried to convince you or myself that nothing was going to change. If you elected me as your pastor, if nothing else instead of a Yankee who uses illustrations about Michigan every week, you would get a redneck who uses the word y'all in sermons every week. Um, and as y'all might expect, other changes, other changes might be less superficial. So I've spent the last month now um, touring and fielding questions from nine of our 12 different life groups at this church. Um, That's 164 West Hillians total. That's over two-thirds of our church. Um, And it has been uh, equal parts wonderful and exhausting. Uh, We actually got to eat every single meal on Christmas Day in our own home, and our daughter Ellery was kind of confused. Like, what is this place? I vaguely remember it. but it's, it's also been so encouraging this past month um, just to meet with you all, to hear your heart for your church, how thoughtful, how engaged, uh, how conscientious you are. And I think a lot of that has come through for me in the kinds of questions that you have asked me in this process. And of all the questions that you've asked me, one of them stands out to me as the most significant. And so I want to dig into it a little deeper this morning. And it's really two related questions that that I want to tackle together as one. And as the title of this message in your bulletin sort of provocatively suggests, this question is simultaneously and paradoxically the best and most important question for us to be asking together as a church, 
and at the same time, the worst question in some ways too. And so let me quickly give you both forms of the question and quickly explain why I think it's both the best and the worst question that I've received throughout this candidating process. And then I want to spend the majority of our time together this morning in the Word examining God's answer to this all-important question. So here it is. Here's the best, worst question. What is your vision for the future of West Hills? And a different, um, if you're marking in your bulletin, go ahead and write that down. It's the answer to the, the, the title of the sermon, so it's got to be important. Um, what is your vision for West Hills? And a different but related question, a second form of that question, I think, is what would you change about West Hills if you were the lead pastor? All right, so let me start with why I think that technically speaking, those are both really bad questions. Um, because who cares? Who, who cares? Who, who gives a flying rip what Will Duvall thinks needs to be improved at West Hills and what the church ought to be like? It isn't my church to make that call in the first place. And even if it was to go to the second question about what I would change, even if I, I had some vision to bring to this, um, I don't actually have the ability to bring that to fruition. Proverbs 16, 9 says, In his mind, man makes the plans, but it is the Lord that establishes his footsteps. God's will will be done for West Hills, regardless of what I might want for the church or plan to that end. His vision is the only one that really matters. Now, that might sound like a technicality, but it's a really important distinction to make. But with that being said, I do think that the question of where we are prayerfully and, and exegetically discerning the Lord is leading us as a church into the future, what God wants to change about his church, if anything, I mean, if we're willing to admit that no church is perfect, not even West Hills, visitors, if you're here, we are the closest thing, you should know that. But even West Hills isn't perfect. If, if there are things that God would, would want to change about his church, I think that question of vision and direction is vitally important for us to ask. And so I want to examine the biblical answer to it by turning to God's word together. So would you, um, as you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Um, we're we're going to read <clears throat> five passages allowed. And if I get caught up, I'm, I'm battling the, the cold this morning. So y'all just power through if I have to take a sip or something. We're going to read five passages. Um, and I'd like for us to actually read these together out loud. Um, together, these, these five passages form Jesus's final parting words of instructions to his disciples before his ascension back into heaven, as recorded in each of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and in the book of Acts. So would you read aloud with me um, first from Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, next from Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. 
Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. From Luke 24, 46 through 48, Jesus said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. John 20, 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And finally, Acts chapter one, verses seven through nine. He said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask now that you would empty me, um, empty this place of, of, of any words or vision or plans or uh, motivations that I would have or, or any of the rest of us would have for this church, that you would come Holy Spirit, um, that you would be with us now as we seek to submit ourselves to the authority of your word, to apply it obediently in our lives personally and collectively as a church. Father, would you work in our hearts this morning to further your vision for your church, for your glory, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> All right, so full disclosure, uh, for some of you, much of this message um, should sound eerily familiar, either because you were in one of those life group meetings with me this past month, or you were here three years ago, almost to the day that I preached a very similar message entitled, What is Success for the Church?, or simply because you've been a part of a biblically grounded, vision-minded church at some point in your past, either here at West Hills or elsewhere. Uh, but perhaps you have been listening and not fully been hearing, and God wants to wake you up to something this morning. Maybe uh, you have been faithfully obedient to God's vision, but you just need the reminder this morning as motivation to keep running the good race with perseverance, or perhaps you are newer to the Christian faith, and this is brand new for you. That's, that's really exciting. Whatever the case may be, I pray that this morning you'll pay, pay close attention because I think answering this question of what God's vision is for his people is too important for us not to revisit frequently. And so now that you've written the question in your bulletin, what is God's vision? Let me offer a condensed version of the biblical answer that we read just a moment ago from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts that you can write in even bigger, bolder letters underneath the question. This is God's vision for his church, to make Jesus known everywhere. To make Jesus known everywhere. You take those five commissioning texts, go and make all disciples of all nations, go into all the world and preach the gospel, proclaim his name to all nations, you're my witnesses. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Those five, summarize them all. This is not in-depth theology this morning. This is just good old-fashioned, plain reading of Scripture. 
I think a good summary of our calling as Christ's followers that he left us on earth with is to go and make Jesus known everywhere. If the gospel is God's saving good news, the church is called to be God's newscasters. Romans 1.16, Paul says the gospel is the good news of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, this gospel that God came to earth to lead, save, restore us from sin, back to the Father by his life, death, and resurrection. That good news is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Paul says. But as Paul implores us later in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But, what does Paul say next? But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they gonna hear without someone to preach? And how are they gonna preach unless they're sent? And so that's exactly what Jesus does. In all five of these commissioning texts, his final parting words to us, really important, last final, final words before leaving earth, this is sending orders, a commissioning mandate to go make this good news known in every corner of the earth. Now, that is God's vision for the universal church, the capital C church, the body of Christ collectively throughout all the world. He has called us to make Jesus known everywhere. And that is the reason that we at West Hills, we use your tithes and offerings, as Taylor reminded us this morning, to support missionaries overseas in Japan and Bolivia and Brazil and Senegal and Sweden and Uganda and all over the world, because we're committed to making disciples of all nations, and we should be. And if I'm your pastor going forward, we're going to continue to be. But there's a little bit more here that's really important, I think, to unpack. Did you notice the specific evangelistic strategy for spreading the gospel to all nations that Jesus lays out for his disciples, particularly in Luke 24 and in the Acts 1 passage, What did Jesus say? He said, you'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. I think there's a progression there that makes sense. There's a reason why he he lists them even in that order. First of all, where are the disciples gathered? They're gathered in all five of these text, the context is they're in Jerusalem, waiting for the Holy Spirit, as Christ has instructed them. They're in Jerusalem. I think his message is clear. I want this gospel to go into every corner of the earth, but it's got to start right here. It's got to start at home. It's got to start with you, right where I've planted you. You're not going to go to the ends of the earth until you've gone next door to Samaria, and you're not going to go next door to Samaria until you spread the good news right here in Judea, the wider Judean sort of countryside, here's a map for you, and you're not going to go to the rest of Judea until you've been faithful in your own backyard in Jerusalem. So Jesus is localizing and particularizing their evangelistic calling. Now, I want to say a word about this idea of particularization because it's something that we don't often discuss. It's not a word you hear frequently in the church, but I think it's actually a massively important biblical idea, particularization. Think about it. God didn't create humanity. God created Adam and Eve. God didn't save humanity. He saved Noah and his family. 
He didn't call humanity. He called Abraham. He didn't redeem humanity. He rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. And then he led them via particular kings. He atoned for their sin through particular priests. He called them back to repentance through particular prophets. Go to the New Testament. Jesus isn't a universal abstract concept offered by God to save us. He's a person. He's a particular person born in the particular town of Bethlehem to the particular parents of Mary and Joseph in the particular year of 4 BC, the particular ethnicity Jew, particular sex male, etc., etc. He's very particular. And this issue of particularity is something that skeptics of Christianity will actually often point to as a problem with Christianity. Why the Israelites? Why doesn't God call everyone? That doesn't seem fair. Or the particularity of election. So you're telling me that Christians believe God's sovereignty and man's depravity means that we can't even come to God on our own, that he has to call us to himself and actually give us the faith we need in order to believe in Christ for salvation, and that God actually chooses to call some and not others? How is that fair? Or the particularity and the exclusivity of the gospel that Jesus would say, no one comes to the Father but through me. When so much of the world's population is born and raised in parts of the world that might never even have a chance to hear about Jesus. How is that fair? As Christians, this problem of particularity is something we have to deal with. And the way that the church historically has answered many of those questions is by pointing out that complaining about the particularity of Jesus' identity or God's election or the gospel's exclusivity. It's like being on the 20th floor of a building that's on fire, and a fireman comes busting through the window from his ladder outside and urges you to climb down to safety with him, and you respond, who are you to tell me that I've got to crawl through this window and climb down that ladder with this fireman? And yet at the same time, the church has to also respond to this problem of particularity, and the the idea that many people never get the chance to respond to Jesus at all because they've never even heard his name, much less the gospel. That particular, that problem, to a certain extent, is on us. It's on the church. We have to confess that problem is our problem because Jesus left us with a vision. He was very clear. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And if 2,000 years later we still still haven't achieved that, reaching everyone with the good news of Jesus, that's on us. That that deserves us taking a long, hard look in the mirror as his church. Now, that being said, what can we as West Hills, as one church, particular church, church, not the capital C church. We are a lowercase c, local particular church. What can we realistically be expected to do about that problem? What, what, what does it mean for us to take this universal vision and principle that Jesus leaves us with, disciples of all nations, and apply it to our particular context? 
Personally, I'll be honest, I don't think that God calls or expects West Hills Church, the 200 of us here, to directly, single-handedly reach all five-plus billion Christians, uh, sorry, non-Christians on the face of the earth. That's, that's the good news for us. I, I don't believe that God is calling us to that, necessarily. So what, who then are we being called to reach? Who is our mission field, West Hills? What, what part does he want us to play? What is our part of this vision that God, that Jesus has left us with? Who is our Jerusalem, our Judea, so that we can then start to think about what it means to go to Samaria and the ends of the earth? So you've written the, the, the question, what is God's vision for the church? You've written the general answer to make Jesus known everywhere. Here's the third the third and, and most important part where we're going to park for the rest of this morning. Right below that, the specific answer. Write out the, the particular answer to the question, what is God's vision for this church, for this particular church for West Hills? And you can write this in the biggest, boldest letters right beneath that, and then we're going to pick it apart together and, and just kind of discuss it this morning. To make disciples who reach all of St. Louis with the good news of Jesus. To make disciples who reach all of St. Louis with the good news of Jesus. Now, there are three key phrases in this vision statement that we need to dissect and discuss together. So let's take them in order of importance and ease. I'm going to save the toughest but the most important phrase for last. So phrase number one within that is all of St. Louis. Uh, I, I'm calling this the easiest of the three phrases, relatively speaking, but make no mistake, I, I don't think that this is an easy phrase to, to achieve you know, agreement and consensus on as a church. I think it's actually quite difficult for us as a church to identify just how narrowly or how broadly God would have us define what constitutes our modern-day Jerusalem and Judea. I can tell you that the idea that it's town and country, the legal township uh, for which this building in which this church meets is zip-coded, um, town and country, to reach all of town, town and country, to me, that feels too small. Uh, that, that, feels, that's, that feels small, um, but I will be honest, and, and I don't know about you, but all of St. Louis, frankly, feels pretty big to me. That feels, that feels actually really big. Um, and especially if we're not just talking about St. Louis City proper, but the wider St. Louis County area of which this building is actually a part, that's somewhere in the ballpark of a million people in St. Louis. Reaching a million people with the gospel. I mean, is that a realistic, is that... Is that something we should even entertain together as a church? Estimates vary on the population of first century Jerusalem, but it was probably in the range of 100,000 people. So that means that if we were to decide as a church to set our sights on reaching all of St. Louis with the gospel, we would be aiming at 10 times the scope of Jesus' initial vision for his disciples. Now granted, there were only 12 of them to reach 100,000 people. There are 200 of us for talking about reaching a million. At the same time, they had the benefit of Pentecost, of publicly healing paralyzed people in front of other people who saw it. That's probably a good evangelistic tool. Of raising people from the dead 
and all the other events recorded in the book of Acts that make it a little easier to understand how they managed to actually do it. The disciples actually achieved the vision Jesus left them with, at least in Jerusalem, within a decade of his death. 10 years, 100,000 people, starts with 12 of them. They did it. So I want to be realistic here at West Hills. We are one church among many in our city. St. Louis is a big city. It feels big to me, at least. I'm from a town one-tenth our size. Some of y'all are from towns a tenth that size or, or even smaller. So is it really our calling and vision to reach all of St. Louis? So that's an open-ended question this morning. But I want to in, invite you <clears throat> this morning to dream with me just a little bit, to, to dream with God, I think. As I was um, writing this part of the sermon this past week, the Lord brought to mind for me, the song Imagine by John Lennon that we are all going to have to endure tomorrow night if you stay up um, late to watch the ball drop in Times Square. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living just for today. Imagine there's no countries no religion too. It's really quite a terrifying, not just unchristian, but anti-Christian dystopian vision of the future. But it's a catchy tune, and so I'm going to steal it and plagiarize it this morning for our purposes. Imagine there's no ignorance, no one who hasn't heard about the saving love of Jesus, God's incarnate word. Imagine all of St. Louis living for him today. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. What if the church all joined together, living on mission until again he comes? Friends, I don't know about you, but when I die and I stand before the Lord and I give him an account of every deed I've done in the body, 2 Corinthians 5.10, I would so much rather Jesus asked me why I set my sights so high and strove to reach a million people with the gospel and failed than to stand before him and hear, I'm glad that you shared your faith with your kids. And even on a rare occasion, when the spirit was really moving, convicting, maybe you shared it with your extended family. But what about your non-Christian coworkers who you interacted with every single day? What about your neighbors, your unbelieving neighbors? What about your lost friends? I just, I have a hard time believing that the same Jesus who sent his disciples to the end of the earth wants to narrow our sphere of influence for the gospel. And so I want to ask you this morning, if he changed a city of 100,000 with 12 people in the Holy Spirit, why not a city of a million with 200 of us in the same Holy Spirit? Why not? And I think it's only fair to let you know right now before you vote on me next week that if I'm your pastor, I'm not going to stop challenging you and encouraging you and exhorting you and celebrating with you and pursuing a bigger and bigger vision for what God wants to do, not only in the lives of his people here at West Hills, but through the lives of those people, of you, for the sake of your workplace and neighborhood, and St. Louis, and Missouri, and the ends of the earth. 
Phrase number two from that vision statement is the good news of Jesus. Now, it seems like that that phrase, the good news of Jesus, would be a no-brainer because the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is what we're all about as a church. At this church, it's right there in our mission statement, in our church constitution. West Hills is a gospel-centered church, and and that's true of every church that's truly a church. They center around the gospel and exist to advance the gospel. And so, where is the difficulty in saying that we as a church are going to be about spreading the gospel? Reaching St. Louis with the gospel. Well, I think the difficulty comes in because when I say we're going to reach all of St. Louis with the gospel, I think what some of you hear, if you're honest, is you hear seeker-friendly, don't you? When I say we're going to reach all of St. Louis with the gospel, you hear preach the same dumbed-down sermon every Sunday where the target audience isn't really Uh, those of us who are here who are believers, the majority of us, it's really the few people here who aren't believers. And some of y'all get flashbacks to your previous church that you left and came here from because you felt like as a Christian, you were no longer being challenged and fed and growing. And so I want to pause and acknowledge this this is a real tension for churches to work out. Um, The church is clearly called in scripture both to evangelize and to disciple, both to sow the seed of the gospel amongst unbelievers and to grow the roots of the gospel in the hearts of believers. It's not an either or, but a both and. And working out the relationship between those two things is really where it gets tricky. How we do that, the relative emphasis we put on each, the structures and systems and services we put in place to accomplish both evangelism and discipleship is where things get tricky. There's, there, there aren't easy, clear-cut, biblical answers for that. So some churches, as you know, view their Sunday morning services primarily as evangelistic opportunities. <clears throat> Bring your friend to church. If you want to go deeper in your faith and growing your roots, you're going to need to come to an additional Wednesday night service. That is one methodological approach to church. A second approach is to swing the pendulum in the opposite direction to div- d- discipleship and say, no, 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 no. The Sunday morning church gathering of God's people is just that. It's God's people. It's Christians. We should be sensitive to and hospitable towards any unbelievers who may wander in on Sundays. But in its essence, the church is for us. It's God's people. And your job as my pastor is primarily to help me grow. That's a second kind of ecclesiology. This is what we're talking about. Ecclesiology, your view of the church. But I want to introduce... This morning, a third, our third and final phrase from that vision statement, and I want to tell you why I think there's actually a third approach to doing church, to what it means to be church, that's better than either the evangelistic-driven or the discipleship-driven models. Phrase three is to make disciples who reach. It's not just to make disciples, and it's not just to reach It's to make disciples who reach. The third model of church is evangelism through discipleship. It's not where I as the pastor do all the evangelism on Sundays and all you've got to do is invite. But it's also not 
where I resign myself as the pastor to focusing on you as the Christian who also happens to be paying my salary. Let's just go ahead and state the elephant in the room. And I'll just hope for the best when it comes to your evangelism. Maybe I'm hel- if I'm helping you grow in your faith enough, eventually somewhere down the road, you'll feel compelled to share it with others. But I'm certainly not gonna push that on you because that might make you uncomfortable. And again, you're paying my salary. And so I'm gonna hide behind some bad theology about how it's the Holy Spirit's role to convict you. And, and, and not mine, and so I'll let myself off the hook for challenging you in the direction of personal evangelism. The third model is not that either. The third model of church is evangelism through discipleship. It's making disciples who reach St. Louis with the gospel, which is the most difficult of these three phrases because evangelism through discipleship is frankly very difficult. It is far easier to be the pastor who does all the evangelism and who gets all the credit and who makes it really easy for you because all you got to do is invite your friends. We'll make it even really easy because we'll serve the right coffee and wear the right clothes and whatever, right? That's easier. It's also easier to just focus on the discipleship and hope for the best. But it's difficult to actually, as a pastor, equip the saints for the work of ministry and then hold them accountable for it as Paul calls pastors to in Ephesians 4. That is a high calling of a pastor as a church. But to me, it's the only way that we can hold these two missional callings of the church, evangelism and discipleship, together in tension, is if, as a church, we are committed to discipleship, to growing the roots of believers for the sake of evangelism, so that you can go out and sow the seed of the gospel in the lives of unbelievers. And I would state the point even stronger this morning and say that if as a church we aren't discipling you in the direction of personal evangelism, if the discipleship is not resulting in personal evangelism, then I would argue it's not actually discipleship that we're doing at all. Discipleship by definition is learning to follow Jesus. And Jesus himself said, I came for this very purpose to preach the gospel, Luke 4.43 And so disciples are inherently evangelistic. If you know Jesus, you will share your faith. It's just that simple. And the idea of a non-evangelical disciple is like the idea of a Clemson victory. There is no such thing. It's a contradiction of terms. Because by definition, if Clemson wins, everyone else loses. Everyone loses, even even Clemson. Don't get me started. Some of y'all feel the same way about Alabama. There's still time for you to see the light and repent and trust in Nick Saban for your personal college football salvation before Judgment Day on January 7th. Roll Tide. Thank you, Sally. So that is first and foremost the most important reason why I think evangelism by discipleship is the best church model because it's biblical. It's biblical, but I want to give you two additional rationales for it. Secondly, I think evangelism by discipleship is most practical. As I talk with friends and other pastors at seeker-driven churches, a lot of the motivation behind that Willow Creek Church movement back 20 and 30 years ago was the mindset that your unbelieving friends and neighbors aren't going to come 
join you for an evangelistic small group Bible study on Wednesday nights, but they will join you for church on Sunday. And so we're going to capitalize on the societal norm that whatever their motivations might be, people still attend church on Sunday mornings. And I would argue that we have seen a significant cultural shift in just the last 10 to 20 years uh, on that. That is no longer a norm. It is no longer culturally expected that people publicly attend church on Sunday or even that you privately self-identify as a Christian. The times have changed. The times have changed, like it or not. And the practical reality of the day and age in which we now live in America, 21st century, is that if we rely on Sunday mornings to fulfill our call to evangelism, we simply will not get the job done. Believers are not just wandering into churches anymore. I don't care what links you go to as a seeker-driven church. Play all the secular songs in your worship set that you want. Install the biggest, widest screen TVs that you want. Uh, have your pastor dress as hip as you want. Dumb down the sermon as much as you want. In the absence of a personal invite, a personal reason to, invite, to join you at church, unbelievers are going to sleep in. They just are. Because they can listen to the radio at home. They can watch their own big screen TV at home or go to the movies. They can read a self-help book. The only reason to be in church is for the community, for them. And frankly, most people would rather not deal with the self-righteous judgment that they get from a lot of churches. And so they'll look for friends at the country club or the PTO instead. And so for the practical reason that unbelievers aren't coming to church like they used to, my best bet says that the church would be better off focusing on the believers who are here and equipping you to go out to them, into your workplace, into your neighborhoods, into your schools, and to share the gospel there. And the last reason, number three, that I'll give you for evangelism by discipleship is it's strategic. Strategic. I, I shared this um, statistic in my sermon on this topic from three years ago, but I'll test your memory, or if you weren't here, I'll test your math skills. If you shared the gospel with one person a day, every day, for the rest of your life, first of all, you'd be a crazy, faithful evangelist. More power to you. Lord, may we all do that. But do you want to guess how long it would take you to reach all of St. Louis with the gospel. Let's just say the 483,000 people in St. Louis who, who on a recent census claimed no religious affiliation. How long would it take you sharing the gospel with one person a day to reach all, of, all, all 483,000 of them with the gospel? Any guesses? Any math prodigies? Yeah, Josiah. Think of the biggest number you can think of and you'll be close. You keep thinking. Anybody else? Oh, yeah. Two hundred thousand in eleven years. Oh, good guess. It's actually not that that big. I um, underestimated your your knowledge of numbers or something. Uh, at, at one person a day, if you went and shared the gospel with one person a day, it would take you one thousand four hundred twenty-five years to share the gospel with all of St. Louis. You're getting closer, though, to, to how long it would take you to evangelize the whole world. It would take you eight, 8 million years 
to share the gospel with the entire world. Five plus billion people. Now, here is the power of evangelism through discipleship. And if you're a math geek like me, the power of exponential growth. If you prayerfully committed this morning to discipling just one person for all of 2019, the next year, and you poured your life into them, and you equipped them to then turn around the following year, and in 2020, they disciple someone else while you disciple someone else, and then in 2021, the four of you become eight of you, and so on and so forth. Now do you want to know how long it would take, guess how long it would take you to reach all of St. Louis? Any guesses? Dennis? Did you say years? Months? Good guess. It's not quite that good of news. 20 years. 20 years. <clears throat> take you 20 years to reach St. Louis with the gospel. And it would take you 33 years to reach the world. 33 years. That means I would not be dipping into my retirement yet, and the Great Commission would be complete. What Jesus left us to do, we would have done. And that's if one person, that is if one person this morning caught the vision for evangelism through discipleship and prayerfully committed to living that out and then was effective to do it. I mean, one person, 33 years, the entire unbelieving world. Now, I want you to imagine what God could do with 200 of us, 200 of us at West Hills, what he could do. Brothers and sisters, I'll close with this. I want to tell you that this kind of vision for the church um, really excites me. The prospect of being a part of this kind of church, of lead pastoring, that kind of church, really, really excites me. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's not about my vision. It's about God, and it's about his vision. And he's calling us to be a people who make Jesus known everywhere by starting in our own Jerusalems and Judeas and making disciples who reach all of St. Louis with the good news of Jesus. And if that excites you too, and even honestly, if that scares you a little bit, if like your heart, blood pressure is a little bit up right now during a sermon like this, the thought of being challenged to be more active in, your, in sharing your faith, trust me, I, I get it. I am not by nature an evangelist. I don't know if any of us are. Some certainly have that kind of giftedness and bent. I am not. But here's the thing. The vision is too great. The calling is too clear. The harvest is too plentiful for us not to answer God's call to his church I want you to know that nothing would humble and honor me more than the opportunity to partner with you and join in that pursuit right here at West Hills for God's glory and for the achieving of God's vision for his church. Let's pray. I'm going to give you a minute just to sit with what you've heard, the message, the call, the challenge, the commission. 
prayerfully reflect on what the Holy Spirit's doing in your heart right now. Father, you are a good God. And Jesus, you are a good Savior. Father, even as we sit here and discuss and dream and dissect your, your calling on our lives, um, I'm mindful of the fact that... Uh, <clears throat> Any sort of calling or vision could have any number of motivations behind it. Uh, and, and as clear as your word is to us, that you want to make Jesus known everywhere, and you want to use us to do it. As much as that alone, your, your clarity and your lordship over our lives should be enough for us to motivate our obedience. Father, we also know that the, the best motivation is a heart of love. I mean, a, a heart that sees people the way Jesus saw them. We read your gospels. We read stories of interactions of Jesus with, with, with people who are hurting and broken and wounded and and lost and, and, and struggling and we hear his heart for them come through in such an emotional, deep, powerful way. Father, would you move in our hearts in the same way through the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you draw us to you and to your vision for us as a people out of love? you motivate our obedience to you out of love. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who, who needs to renew as they're uh, vi revisiting their New Year's resolutions and they look at their list of losing weight and going to the gym and whatever else and they're maybe feeling convicted this morning that there are actually some much more important things for them to commit to in this new year. If there's anyone here who by the power of your spirit, not my words, is feeling convicted, compelled um, to commit to evangelism through discipleship in a new kind of way personally, pray that you would um, speak that into their heart this morning. And, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, motivate their obedience to that calling. Father, if, if that is your vision for us as a church, and I think it is, and if that is our collective consensus, that that is your vision for us as a church, would you do that collectively in our hearts and our, our lives in the days and weeks and months and years to come? 
more and more shape us and mold us into um, the kind of church with, with a, a heart of love for the lost that you would have us to be. I thank you that we are already a church like that. I thank you that for the stories of personal evangelism that we hear on a regular basis here at West Hills. I thank you for the faithful obedience of your people. I thank you for the work you're doing in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here in my own life. Father, if there's anyone here who's new to this, who is hearing all this for the first time, they're confused because I've used a lot of Christianese language and I've talked mostly to the church and not to them. I pray that you would somehow speak through my brokenness and my faulty preaching and touch their heart this morning with the power of your gospel. That they would be able to see more clearly their need for a savior. Father, I pray that we would be a church that would have a heart for that person, whether they're here or out there in our neighborhood, in our community, in our workplace, and you would motivate our radical obedience to your great commission calling vision for us. Father, I thank you for what you're doing in the life of this church. Pray your sovereignty over, over uh, this next week as we as we seek your vision for our leadership as a church, pray that your will would be done and we'll give you the glory, the honor, and the praise. In your name we pray, Jesus. 